This is the word of the Lord in Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As part of my job each week, I uh, meet with a group of young people who have tried to hurt themselves. And in the context of this meeting, I will often tell a story from a curriculum called Godly Play. If you're not familiar with that, Godly Play takes the, the major big stories of the Judeo-Christian tradition, presents them in a somewhat neutralized fashion, and invites participants, uh, young people, to think about where they find meaning in the midst of the story. And so this week I was telling the story of the deep well, which is one of my favorites. It comes from uh, the Midrash, which is uh, the Jewish commentary on what we would consider the Old Testament scriptures. And to tell the story, they come in a box, and what I do to begin is set out a large piece of felt that's very tan, and that represents desert. And in the middle of the desert... I place what's a small ceramic well. Near the well, I put a bucket. And then scattered around the well are a number, five or six or seven golden threads. And once all of this has been set out, the story goes something like this. That once, a long time ago, there was a well that people had forgotten how to get water out of. You could go to the edge of the well and you could look down to the bottom and you could feel the cool, damp air coming up on your face. But the well was so deep that you couldn't actually see the water at the bottom. This well existed in a desert and the desert is a very harsh place. The desert is dry and it's hot. Nothing grows so there's no shade anywhere. There's no food to be had along the way. And indeed, as we're thinking, there's no water. And so most people, when they cross the desert, they do so as quickly as possible. They rush across to get from one side to the other. And even if they happen to see the well, it's not something that they tarry about because it's not obvious how to get water out of the well. One day, a person was crossing the desert and came upon the well, and this person was different. This person stopped and decided to wonder. The person decided to ponder. 
The person picked up the bucket and considered it. The person kicked the golden threads lying on the ground. And the person stood and thought. Eventually, the person started tying the threads together and made one long rope out of the threads, tied one end of the rope to the bucket, and lowered it down into the well. The person brought up a bucket full of water. The person drank from the refreshing water, and the person was changed. The person left the threads tied together to the bucket and went on through the rest of the desert. And the story being told, we'll start to talk as a group about certain questions that help the group to process important questions about life and important questions about meaning. So we might say, I wonder for you what the desert really is. Or I wonder for you what is in the well. What would be required for change? I wonder what change took place for this person. And we begin to discuss that as a group. And this week, one of the group participants said at one point, what's in the well is happiness. But I don't have a bucket, and I don't have rope, and I have no idea how to get happiness. I thought that was both a very real and pretty insightful comment for a young person. Some of you may feel in that place today that happiness is elusive to you. And I think we can all resonate with that to some extent, having experienced at some point a period of time in which we might have known that happiness exists somewhere in the world, but we felt like we didn't have a bucket and we didn't have thread. And I wonder if this person posed to you the question, how do I go about getting happiness? What you would say to this person? How would you explain how to pursue happiness? Now, you may not realize it on a first read, but happiness, a notion of happiness, is really at the core of the beginning of the Psalter, uh, which is what theologians call the book of Psalms. So a couple of, of tidbits about the Psalter. The Psalter is, as you probably are aware, Israel's songbook. Right? It's their liturgical uh, manual for what they're going to sing in various worship practices. The Psalms weren't written all at once. They were written over hundreds of years. But at some point, a person or a group of people, we don't really know, sat down and said, these 150 make the cut. This is going to be the Psalter. When they did that, inevitably, imagine if you're, if you're sitting down and you've got all kinds of songs in Israel's history and you're saying these are the ones that are actually going to be part of this book, you're making decisions, right? Of course, spirit-led, but what goes in and what is out, and you're also making decisions about organization. There are lots of hints about um, very, various organizational themes that went into the book of Psalms. Now, uh, theologians love to argue over those, and most of them don't really pertain to us today, except in the case of Psalm 1 and 2, right? Bible scholars have long noticed that there seems to be a thematic element that binds them together, and they were chosen to be uh, sort of a doorway to the Psalms. 
In other words, you prepare to enter the Psalms by doing business with Psalms 1 and 2. And the way that they're linked is with the word blessed, which could easily and is in many translations translated happiness. And it really carries the idea a little bit more than both. It's it's the notion in Israel that one is deeply satisfied by an authentic life. And so Psalm 1 begins, how? Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, who sits not in the seat of scoffers, right? who stands not in the way of sinners, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. Your blessedness or happiness, according to Psalm 1, comes when an individual organizes, orients their heart by God's person and God's law. But Psalm 2 ends with what? Blessed is the man who finds refuge in him. The other part of blessedness or happiness or a deeply satisfied life is not only orienting one's life toward God, but also finding refuge in God Himself. And this is the center point of what we're wrestling with today. What does it mean to find refuge in Jesus? What prevents us from finding refuge in Jesus? And why is it worth making sure or, or laboring at that endeavor that we would find Jesus as our refuge? If you are a person who likes kind of bullet points to hang your hat on in the course of a sermon, we're going to do number one, the challenge of blessedness, number two, the gift of blessedness, and number three, the hope of blessedness. So challenge, gift, and hope. What is the challenge of blessedness? Well, right off, you see it in verses 1 through 3. God exists over the nation of Israel, and the invitation uh, goes out throughout the Old Testament that the nations could recognize the authority of God, but they don't. Instead, they rage against His authority. They rage against His anointed one. Why? Why are they so angry? Well, if you look at verse 3, they see God's rule as slavery. Essentially because God would have them live in a way that's contrary to the way that they want to live. They want to orient their lives, their tribes, their nations the way they want to. And when God's law is considered a standard, they would rather throw it off. They would break those bonds, right? The cords would be broken. That they would be freed. They see uh, worshiping Yahweh and being under His dominion as something akin to slavery and something that they want to break away from. Now, throwing off God's yoke, breaking His bonds, is something that you and I are more familiar with than we would like to admit. Some of you think, well, I'm not really the raging type. I don't really rage at God or see His rule as authoritative and so... I'm going to excuse myself at this point. And I don't want you to excuse yourself yet. And I'm going to say, bless your heart. And I'm going to invite you to think about that a little bit more deeply right? in terms of how we really do rage against God's authority, especially when we are disappointed. A couple of analogies may help us to start to think about this. Imagine a couple that gets into a terrible fight. This might be your story. Imagine that the husband doesn't rage. He doesn't yell, he doesn't scream, he doesn't punch a hole in the wall, but he gets very cold. He turns off emotionally. 
He, he disappears. Maybe to the garage. Maybe to the yard. Now, he's not raging in the way that we typically think of raging, but you better believe that he's trying to express contempt to his wife. It's a form of being angry in a more polite and sophisticated manner. And we get very sophisticated about our contempt. You can imagine an adolescent. Maybe an adolescent who expects their parents to buy something for them. And when the parents don't buy that thing, the adolescent gets angry. But maybe the adolescent knows, well, if I yell or if I get really disrespectful, that's going to cost me. So what does the adolescent do? Maybe just gives a look that says in that moment, mom or dad, I wish you were dead. If you're a parent of an adolescent, you've seen that look. And you know what it means. And it's not a raging and emotions going all over the place, but it is absolutely an expression of contempt, of anger and frustration about what is happening uh, in the midst of that person's life. When, we, when we're hurt by the situation that we find ourselves in, we typically want to hurt. We are most prone to hurt, to try to hurt God, or to try to hurt others when we ourselves have been hurt. And that happens all the time. And it's an easy thing for us to do because life goes in unpredictable and precarious directions all the time. I don't know about you, but I've been, maybe I've been following more closely the news in India than some of you have because I used to pastor a church and we were very deeply involved in various projects in India and we made at least one trip every year. And so to watch the impact of COVID unfolding in the nation of India and to see the numbers rising exponentially has been very hard on my heart to the extent where I ask at various times, God, do you know what you're doing? Why are, we, why are you letting this happen? Some people are calling it now the greatest humanitarian crisis in the last hundred years. Why do the poorest of the poor always seem to suffer the most? Aren't you supposed to be the guy that's for the poor, for the orphan, and for the widow? And when I feel that, I may start to pull back. I might start to say, and you're not safe and you're not predictable and I don't know what you're doing and so it's just easier for me to go to the garage or the yard than to engage you. Or I may not say anything disrespectful, but I give them a look. Or I just stop paying attention at all. Or I go to church, but my mind is everywhere, but actually on Him. All ways of, of showing contempt. You know, what's fascinating is that this question um, has been wrestled with for centuries. And in his commentary on Psalm 2, Martin Luther does such a fantastic job of, of asking the questions about, um, about why it's so easy to rage against God. Because if we rely on reason alone, well, we might end up there. This is what Luther wrote this 500 years ago. It could have been written today. Reason proclaims that either God does not see such things and hence carries out all things by chance, or if he sees and does not suppress the wicked, he is weak. Right? So do you hear a little bit different language? So what's Luther saying? He's saying if you look at something like India, if you look at something that really says, what is going on here? Why, are, why is bad things happening? Or why are the wicked prospering? Luther says you've got two, uh, two options by reason. 
Uh, number one that is that God doesn't actually see the things that are happening. Uh, in which case, uh, he's in the sense that he's, um, he's not capable, he's not really powerful, or he doesn't care to suppress the wicked, in which case he's not good. Luther says these are your two options based on reason. For to see and to allow unworthy things which you are able to prohibit, reason believes, shows an unjust and unfair mind. This is the honor that reason grants to God. It judges him either to be foolish because he does not see or know many things, or wicked because he does not prevent the evil which he sees. Right? God is either foolish because he can't see, or he's wicked because he doesn't actually do anything about it. Against these blasphemies, the Holy Spirit here warns us, lest we think that God does not see the attempts of the wicked because he turns a blind eye to them. Luther says, Psalm 2 is a gift. Because even though these things are happening, God acknowledges to us, I'm aware of these things occurring. They're not, I'm, it's not that I can't see them, and it's not that I won't prevent them, but I'm going to go about this in my own way in a way ultimately that will, of course, lead to the cross. And even in this case, God expresses his, his power, His sovereignty, even when it's difficult to see. He says that all the nations are raging. They rally together against me and my anointed. And what is God's reaction? He laughs. Right? Can you imagine like a seven-year-old going up to his dad and saying, Dad, I'm going to punch you. What does the dad do? He laughs. Right? He chuckles. Because the notion that the child can actually hurt the dad is absurd in the same way that the nations raising God can achieve anything is absurd as well. But if we recognize that we think just like the nations and that we have the propensity to rage against God as well, then how do we move beyond thinking like the nations? How do we actually live in a different way? Well, we have to understand the gift of blessedness. And here in verses 4 through 6, God calls these efforts of the nations of vanity. It's emptiness. There's nothing to it. God rules and His rule cannot be questioned. And He says that His authority is, is placed in His anointed one. It's the idea that will eventually become the idea of Messiah. Right? And so his anointed one, though, in the ancient world was who? It was one of the kings of Israel. Think Saul and David and Solomon. But the interesting part here is that by the time the psalm is collected into the psalms, there's no more monarchy. It's long gone. And so, if you can imagine, Israel gathers and sings this psalm, but there's no anointed one. There's no one to celebrate. And so it's very much what we'd call eschatological. There's a future hope. We hope in singing this song that God is going to again provide a king like David. And of course, living on this side of the story, we see that Luke in Acts and the author of Hebrews will pick up Psalm 2 and say, of course, Psalm 2 is about Jesus all along. That He was the anointed one. That He is the one in whom we find refuge that he is the one that will come and crush the nations, break them like a rod of iron, it says, against a potter's vessel. 
Just this idea of, of shattering things, something into a thousand pieces. Now, here's the problem. When Jesus shows up, that doesn't happen. He doesn't go head to head with the nations. He doesn't smash them into a thousand pieces. And so with everyone starting in Acts and going through Hebrews and up to the Reformation and here today, we realize that there's a, there's a sense, there's a way in which Psalm 2 has to be reread in the, the fullest revelation of God in Jesus Christ. That when God actually comes in Christ, mercy triumphs over judgment, at least for this season in God's redemption. And what we begin to realize as we think about it is that the arrival of Jesus as the anointed one transforms the reading of the psalm. You see, in Israel's day, their biggest problem was all these nations, the Canaanites and the Amorites and the Ammonites, and they just won't leave us alone. We get done fighting one on one side, we have to fight another on the other side. And if God would just take care of all these nations, then we would be fine. But what's interesting as you proceed in the Old Testament is the nations stop being the problem. And the prophets start saying, Actually, the problem isn't outside of us. It's inside of us. And the problem isn't that the nations would be defeated. The problem is that our hearts of stone, we don't have the power to make them hearts of flesh. And so we have a desperate need that we have no idea how to meet. We need God to do something on our behalf. And by the time of Jesus, we realize that he doesn't come to defeat the nations. He comes to defeat sin and death. The nations, he comes to, to rescue, to redeem the nations, to extend the free offer of the gospel because he's willing, rather than allowing judgment to flow directly to us, he takes it upon himself. Well, how does this work? Right? How is this a gift that we actually start to, to understand deeply and to live out of? Let's think about our hearts for a minute. We can even pick back up with India. Right, someone who's watching what's going on in India and feels, God, I don't, I don't know why you permit this. You don't seem safe. You don't seem good. I'm going to pull away a little bit. Now, God forbid, and, and this may be the case, the story in some of your homes, and if it is, I'm so sorry. Let's imagine further that the COVID strikes closer to home and takes one of our parents. And we think, God, that was too early. And this was not what I saw coming. It's not how the story was supposed to go. And now I'm not just not thinking you're safe. I'm angry at you. I don't like what you're doing. And I've sought you, and I thought seeking you has its benefits. But I don't feel those benefits. Let's make it even more real. Again, God forbid this should happen, but what if COVID took one of our children? And then not only are you angry, you hate. I hate God. I hate him for what he's allowed to happen in the life of my family. I despise him. And in fact, if I had the opportunity, if he would come down and face me like a man, which is one of the greatest lines from the book of Job, right? I'd kill him. Now imagine, or I imagine, that if Jesus was actually present in that conversation with you, Jesus would say something like, I know. It is desperately hard. Uh, but it's a necessary part of the story. And remember that part about you wanting to kill me. I let you do that. 
And then our hearts begin to melt. We start to realize that we have such, we think like the nations all the time, and we don't understand the depth of the gospel. Right? That it turns everything upside down. That even though we can't understand why things are happening in a certain fashion, and we would rage against God for what he does, we forget that the story has gone through the cross. That even though we can't understand, we can't say that he isn't loving and doesn't desperately love us and run towards us, given the cross. And this is what makes the psalm interpreted in light of the cross so amazing, because the command is, kiss the son, be sure to be obedient. That doesn't work in redemptive history until the son comes and kisses you first. And then you can move toward him. And that's the gift of blessedness. It's the gift of the refuge that is being offered here. And this is how it actually begins to change us. Well, then how does that hope unfold? How do we understand the hope of blessedness? Well, we might take a minute to riff a little bit on the little pigs. Uh, Let's imagine that you are young and uh, just eager to go out into the world and you're shopping for your first house. And so you go down to Deep Ellum, where every young person wants to live, maybe, I don't know. And you think, this is cool. I can walk to all these clubs, and this would be really fun. And the realtor shows you a house of straw. And you think, straw seems very 17th century. (laughs) But you can hear the unsa, unsa, unsa in the background, and you think, I could have so much fun here. You think, well, what if it gets wet? But the realtor points out that they've duct-taped umbrellas all over the the house in a canopy and so he says you know what even if it rains you won't know it's raining and ignorance is bliss and you're tempted but you're smart see I'm not going to choose the first house I see let's look at another house he says okay so he takes you uptown a little bit shows you an older clapboard model that's framed with one by one studs and you think I'm not sure that's very secure but you would not believe the garden It's like your yard is the Garden of Eden. And better yet, as part of the purchase of the house, you get enrolled in this landscaping program, and you never have to work on the garden. It's done for you. You just get to enjoy it. Further, this house comes with a membership to the local brewery. And you start to think, two or three pints a night, that's, I'm going to save a fortune. But you're not, you're savvy. You're going to wait. You say, I want to see one more house. And so he takes you out a little further and he shows you an old stone or brick house and it looks secure, but really, frankly, your first thought is, this house looks boring. And you realize that there's an HOA and there's kind of an expectation on how you live and how you're supposed to conduct yourself. And you say, ah, that seems like a lot of work. And the community seems really involved and you think, I have to to participate with all these people? What if I don't like some of them? And you think that, oh, I also have to do the maintenance on the landscaping? That's a ton of work. I feel exhausted just thinking about it. And so, what house do you choose? In some ways, a silly analogy, and in some ways, not. Because as we're talking about the difficulty and challenge and always finding refuge in Jesus, how often do we want to be in the place that's fun? in the place that we can be distracted by things that we consider entertaining? How often do we want to be in the second house and participating in something that's an escapism or a self-medication? 
How often do we really want to be in the house that may consider, may require what feels like more work, but that's because our old self is revolting against any notion of actually finding refuge in Jesus, and we would rather live in the other two places. And so we persuade ourselves that they're more fun or better, but really they're exhausting, and they defeat our humanity, and they don't give us life. And so which house really would you gravitate to, and which house would you want to be in when the tornado comes? So the tornado's coming. One of the facts of this life is that you can't avoid the tornado for all your days. And so when it comes, do you want to be in the brick and stone house finding refuge, or do you want to be in the straw house that's fun, or the wood house that's escaping? And I'll tell you this, it's a lot easier to get into the brick house before the tornado comes than in the midst of the tornado itself. I asked you earlier, I wonder what you would say to the person this week who said, I believe happiness is in that well, but I don't have any ropes and I don't have a bucket. How would you answer that question? Would you be able to think a little bit more deeply about, well, from a biblical perspective, happiness or blessedness comes from loving God and His law in Psalm 1 and in Psalm 2, finding Him as your refuge running over and over and over again to live in the love that is exhibited at the cross and to seek God's face. And it's that happiness, that blessedness that we can run to because even, even as you come to the supper this morning, I want to challenge you to kiss the Son. And I want you to kiss the Son because He's already kissed you. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we live in a tumultuous world that is precarious and unpredictable. But you have made refuge, the exact refuge that we need in our Lord Jesus Christ. Would you both forgive us for finding refuge in all the wrong places, but also realize, help us to realize, to know deeply the love that you have exhibited to us and the desire for us to move into the refuge that Jesus offers. As the author of John will say, if the Son has set you free, then you are free indeed. Would you help us to know the freedom of that refuge? We ask it humbly in Christ's name. Amen.